0: Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. RAF, eyes in the sky, British and American ships at sea, watching the Israel-Hamas war and waiting. But to what end? The humanitarian
1: thing, yes, of course they can do it, but it almost feels like a cover for just putting your chess pieces in the right part of the board for whatever next.
0: Also on SITREP, fierce fighting, slow progress, but it is progress. We get a first-hand account of Ukraine's counter-offensive.
2: One Ukrainian commander I spoke to said that he only had five artillery shells a week for his L119 which meant less than one a day and at that rate it wasn't really any use at all.
0: And we talked to the man who wrote America's counterinsurgency manual and ultimately had charge of British operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. General David Petraeus shares his personal lessons on the evolution of war.
3: I did actually ask, could you give us a little bit more detail on what happens after we get to Baghdad and topple the regime? And their response was, you just get us to Baghdad, Dave. We'll take it from there. And obviously, that did not work out uh, particularly well.
2: Sitrep with Kate Jabot and Professor Michael Clark.
0: The complex history and modern dynamics in the Middle East mean a conflict that starts between two clear parties is at great risk of spreading like wildfire. So far in Israel's war with Hamas in Gaza, that has not happened. But the rapid deployment of ships and planes by the US and Britain does show how worried they are. Uh, Mike, hi. um, Are they right to be worried? Uh,
4: Yes, they are. Because the attack which took place on the 7th of October, the Hamas attack uh, into Israel, was a game changer. It really was a 9-11 moment for Israel and potentially for the rest of the world. And the things that we've seen, just the reactions on the street, as they say, around Arab capitals in the last 48 hours, as it were, tells us that this crisis may be in a very small place called Gaza, but actually it threatens to remake, in a rather violent way, uh, the structure of the Levant itself.
0: And Mike, the American deployment dwarfs the British one. So what has Washington sent exactly?
4: Well, there's the two carrier battle groups, the so Gerald R. Ford is there, CENTCOM confirmed it was there some days ago, and the Eisenhower, the, the second carrier battle group, I think is all is either there or it's almost there. And you could you know with two carrier battle groups you can start a war. And so it's there as a deterrent to make sure that the other regional powers know that the United States will not be indifferent to what happens. It won't just stand by as and, and wring its hands at what is happening. But also carriers do represent an enormous investment in capabilities. So they can act in a humanitarian way, their communication centres, their intelligence gathering centres. There's a great deal that you can do with a carrier battle group and they're a a hedge against the unexpected. If things develop in peculiar ways, when you've got two carrier battle groups there, you've got lots of options, both military and non-military, which those carrier battle groups can implement for you.
0: So what is the thinking exactly?
4: I think the thinking from America's point of view is to try to contain the crisis, to keep this to an Israeli-Gaza, Israeli-Hamas war and not allow it to go any further. And by containment, they know it might spread to the West Bank and East Jerusalem. I think they're almost expecting that. But they really don't want it to spill over from Lebanon. And they absolutely don't want the Iranians, either deliberately or because they can't resist it, to get pulled in. It's possible that Iran doesn't want to get pulled in, but will be so will be pulled in in any case because groups as it were acting as Iran's proxies will do their own thing and get pulled in. And so the United States are very keen to resist Iran actually becoming uh, tangibly involved in this crisis. And they'll do quite a lot to try to prevent that.
0: Okay, so let's look at the British deployment, which the prime minister outlined to MPs.
4: I have deployed a Royal
5: Navy task group to the Eastern Mediterranean, including RFA Lime Bay and RFA Argus three Merlin helicopters and a company of Royal Marines ready both to interdict arms and support the humanitarian response. We are bolstering our forces in Cyprus and across the region and let me be clear, we are not engaging in fighting or an offensive in Gaza, but we are increasing our presence to prevent broader regional instability at this dangerous moment.
0: So, Mike, one of the interesting bits in there is that bolstering of our forces in Cyprus, 250 miles from Gaza. So not engaging in fighting, but maybe trying to look like we could if we had to.
4: Yes, there's a degree of symbolism in all that to show that we are, you know, second to the United States. We may be very much smaller, but we can do things quickly in the way that the United States can. We still have that ability to to be there on day one, just about. Um, Hmm. But also, for the same reasons as the Americans want some force in the area, there's lots of other things they can do. I mean, the Prime Minister said there, interdiction, it may be that there'll be a lot of arms smuggling going in and out of Gaza. And so a lot of seaborne traffic may have to be interdicted to to maintain a, a barrier. Uh, against uh, smuggling into gaza uh, intelligence collection is be, will be very important i mean the british and cyprus are doing a lot to look after what's happening over lebanon to at least report mm. on what they know is happening in lebanon and then the possibility of civilian evacuation i mean you may need more troops a company of marines are on board the uh, the rfa ships the two royal fleet auxiliary ships and you know if a civilian evacuation a rapid evacuation has to be effected, and it, it did it was there was a case in the 1980s where we did exactly that from lebanon then you all you need need a company of marines to oversee it so there's lots of different things that may be done so it's it's a it's a symbolic deployment but also it has two or three you know real world effects which we gives us a a range of options um if we need them in the next few weeks
0: and to break it down a bit more that intelligence gathering you're talking about the planes and helicopters they're very much for surveillance then
4: Yes, they are. I mean, the P-8 Poseidon is there. That's been on station now for a, over a week. Helicopters, less so, but I mean, they're, they're very good for intelligence in the maritime space. And also, RAF Trudos, uh, Mount Olympus in uh, Cyprus, is a very important listening station. You know, I mean, Cyprus has never been more important to us than it is now. Cyprus and Gibraltar, mm-hmm. given given developments in North Africa and the Middle East, the ability to have two bases at either end of the Mediterranean is extremely <laughs> useful. In terms of intelligence gathering and in Cyprus, you've got this jumping off point uh, using RAF Akritiri, very big base and all the the sovereign base areas, which are really useful uh, to Britain. But also you can have operatives going in and out of there without too much attention because there's so much transit in and out of Cyprus. If you have intelligence agents moving in or intelligence services moving in, nobody really notices until they start doing their job.
0: Well, the Merlin helicopters will be flying from two Royal Fleet Auxiliary ships, Argus and Lime Bay. They're support vessels for the Royal Navy. They're not warships. So are they ripe for the job of patrolling and potentially intercepting weapons shipments? Tom Sharp commanded four different ships during his 27 years in the Royal Navy.
1: There's two parts to that answer. As as an asset on their own, they're well equipped to do it. They have the sensors, they have the information feeds to put them in the right part of the ocean. Uh, to conduct these tasks, and then they have the assets within them, the Royal Marines and the boats to go and do it. That doesn't ameliorate the fact that they will be operating in a relatively high threat environment. And that's perhaps where their shortcomings are exposed slightly more. So in terms of what the Prime Minister said, uh, uh, allocating for that task, they can do that pretty well, but they will need to be protected in order to do it. And that then becomes a question of whether that's the US Navy uh, or the Royal Navy.
0: So if if it were to be the Royal Navy, what would be
1: required? HMS Duncan is currently up in the Adriatic, uh, and she would be perfect for that. She's one of our area air defence destroyers with long and short range missile systems that could provide an overwatch to these two ships as they conduct these tasks. But she's also currently the, the flagship for one of the NATO standing groups assigned to tasks in and around the Russian activity in Ukraine. So now we've got a tasking conundrum. We've got a priorities conundrum. She's up there doing valuable tasking with the Commodore on board, but also we're about to send two relatively large units into a missile envelope in the Eastern Mediterranean without UK protection. So what's the priority? Now, if Duncan is detached and has to head down there, then she will probably disembark the NATO staff uh, and they'll carry on doing their task as as the flag just on another ship. And then Duncan becomes just a Type 45 destroyer and she picks up the uh, the two RFAs as they head past. I personally think that would be a sensible option. I'm slightly uncomfortable with the idea of relying on the Americans for this task when we have a ship of our own that, that could do it.
0: And uh, what about humanitarian support? How might they play a part in that if and when the situation allows?
1: That's really harder to call, I think. It's, it is difficult to envisage a scenario where they go alongside and, and start evacuating people in in their thousands like operation highbrow back in the noughties, it's hard to see you know where and and who would they be evacuating where is this humanitarian uh, task coming from uh, and where would they go there are so many moving parts to that and I think both the US and the UK groups have been positioned to do that but I think that's It almost feels like a cover for just putting your chess pieces in the right part of the board for whatever next. And the humanitarian thing, yes, of course they can do it, but how and to what end is much harder to call at this point.
0: Mr. Sunak stated clearly that our aim is to prevent broader regional instability, not to join any conflict. What should we make of the inclusion of a company of Royal Marines and also the slightly more vague statement that we're bolstering our forces in Cyprus?
1: Navies are there to deter. In fact, they spend 99% of their time setting the conditions to not need to be used. One of the key other components of deterrence is the fact that if you do fail and it does flip across into kinetic action, you have the pieces to do that. And so by putting these large gray ships, I mean, they're not warships, but you know, to all intents and purposes, they're still sovereign territory. They still fly an ensign. They still have all that sort of architecture around them. So let's call them warships. Uh, you're putting them in place and that's sending a very clear message. And then within them is offensive capability if that doesn't work so it really is it's the it's the it's the joy of navies it's what they do it's what the two u.s aircraft carriers are, are doing they're they're just there out of sight but not out of mind
0: yeah you mentioned the u.s uh, air carriers um they've sent a carrier strike group another is on the way aside from this very big message uh, what are they actually there for
1: yeah so the uss ford was there already. Um, She has now been extended. That's very significant because that takes sign off at the top of the US government to do. The Eisenhower was already going. Um, She has been accelerated and is now heading across the Atlantic. And then there's the the US 26 Mu, which is the USS Bataan and Carter Hall that were in the Gulf and are now heading round to the Red Sea. Again, a big question mark as to how far they go. Stopping in Mm -hmm. the Red Sea, Posturing there is a different proposition to going through sewers. Again, it's all just at the moment, it's moving the, the pieces of this jigsaw. When I spoke earlier about deterrence being the ability to then convert those those movements into activity, into kinetic activity, to US nuclear strike carriers, I mean, it is, almost, it is really hard to kind of translate what that means in terms of offensive firepower and their ability to do almost anything within that from small boat work, to to boots ashore, if needs be, special forces, to interdicting Hezbollah missiles over land with their various uh, radars and and their own uh, missile system. So they can do everything from menacing posture over the horizon to very, very aggressive activities and everything in between.
0: From a strategic and political standpoint, could the US group really start firing if things did deteriorate?
1: Yeah, the question of whether or not they could fire weapons over land. Um, yes, they could with permission, but I don't think they will. I think they'll be co- they'll be focusing much harder on, on the elements, the force elements that the Isra- Israelis don't have. So missile protection over land, they, they clearly do with Iron Dome, which so far is, is, is a high percentage uh, success rate, apart from that initial surge where it was overwhelmed. Similarly, very close in, um, uh, corvette-type interdictions, very small boats uh, zapping around trying to cause chaos. I don't think the US will necessarily want to get involved with that because the Israelis can, and it's very close in. So they'll be looking at who's doing what, um, as you know, the Americans can do all of it, uh, but they'll mm-hmm. be trying to avoid those elements that, that are already covered off by, by someone else.
0: You mentioned their capabilities. How vulnerable though are the British and American ships if the conflict does spread beyond Israel and Gaza?
1: Yeah, there, I mean, there is a there is a credible surface to surface threat there from uh, from Hezbollah, not so much Hamas, obviously, but from Hezbollah. They've got missiles, the Charlie A2s they used previously and they've got a bigger and a nastier missile than that. So there is a threat. There are um, submarines there potentially. Um, so. But, but they, they're they very good at protecting themselves in the underwater surface and, and, and air environment. That is that is core business. That doesn't mean to say they're invulnerable, that no ship is invulnerable. And they all understand that. Uh, but I think it's safe to say that a U.S. Uh, aircraft carrier is probably the most defended piece of sovereign territory on the planet. It is very hard to imagine something that has more weapons surrounding it for its own protection. So, yeah, they're vulnerable if it expands, if if... If Hezbollah join, if Iran uh, joins overtly, obviously they they have, you know, they're involved, um, then that's a different proposition, um, certainly for those ships in in the area. But then they can keep themselves out at range and carry on doing a lot of those tasks anyway.
0: So it will be a case of watching and waiting.
1: For now, that's it. Over the horizon. Getting their orders together, getting their drills together, making sure they're ready for all these eventualities—even the ones I've just said it—they might not, they might not be asked to do. They'll be, they'll be getting ready now to do all of them, and that's the extraordinary thing about naval deployments: that you, you never end up doing what you set off to do. You have to leave with enough organic flexibility to change tasks halfway through, and that's what the, that's what the carrier groups will
0: be doing right now. Tom Sharp, great to speak to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Mike, can you just explain a bit more about the idea of Royal Marines potentially going after vessels suspected of carrying armed shipments? A, a the risks sound high, and B, what are the international rules, if any, on them intervening like that?
4: Yeah, I mean, the, the rules are, in a sense, that the rules of maritime law. So, uh, if you're going after arms shipments then it's in the high seas uh, you're trying to interdict something that's in uh, international space on the basis of uh, UN resolutions or possibly a NATO resolution but it wouldn't be difficult to find the right justifications in this case because uh, shipping arms into terrorist groups like Hamas uh, there's plenty of resolutions against that and there's plenty of UK law that covers that as well so there's, there's not a problem But there has to be a legal justification for intervention on the high seas and the risks of course are quite high I mean, the Navy has, you know, has done this in the northern part of the Gulf for many years in the al Arab waterway, got into some difficult times with Iranian um, rib boats at one time. The group of uh, naval personnel, were, if you remember, were were lifted by the Iranians and had to be released in very inauspicious circumstances. So it, it, it is risky, but as Tom Sharp was saying, it needs, you. if you're going to do this, you need to have some cover. And I suspect he's right when he says that HMS Duncan may be detached from its... Mm. Uh, NATO duties in the Adriatic to come and support any interdiction that takes place, because you do want some cover, and um, the RFA ships are very useful, but they can't defend themselves. They do need some, uh, you know, a warship close by that's got the sort of capabilities that, that Duncan has got. I, so I suspect he's right when he says that may well happen. But yes, it's dangerous. You know, the Marines trained to do this all the time. Technically, getting to the side of a ship, getting onto a ship, checking it out, that's all standard procedure. But lots of things can go wrong in those moments and you don't know if the ship is going to make a run for it and you need to chase it and then you know shots end up being fired you know there are all sorts of imponderables when you board another ship
0: well the war in the middle east has almost entirely taken ukraine out of the headlines there was already an element of fatigue surrounding ukraine news stories and with slow progress in the counteroffensive, it can feel like there is little which is truly new to report But while the fighting may be off the front pages, it is still raging. So we've been talking once again to The Daily Telegraph's Colin Freeman to get a sense of what is actually happening. He's just back from three weeks traveling along the front line, assessing progress in Ukraine's counteroffensive.
2: Yes, certainly there's been no big cities taken or no big prizes taken really during the the counter-offensive. We've not seen big crowds of cheering people cheering on Ukrainian forces as as they've come into various towns or anything like that, the kind of thing that we saw occasionally last year. What's going on instead really is lots of very, very fierce battles for often very, very small villages, sometimes 500 people or less, and most of those people, if not all of them, are often left sometimes these battles will be raging for you know four or five six weeks at a time and while they don't get much publicity in the wider world for understandable reasons they do actually attract quite a lot of headlines in ukraine and you will see battles discussed endlessly on tv and social media that may have been over minute amounts of territory but given the level of fighting and the 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 level of grit that has been required to take them, these are not insignificant, but the progress is very slow. Uh, you're often talking, you know, like one or two kilometres, one village here, one village there, and so on. But as far as the Ukrainians um, go, what they do say is that the, the degree to which the Russians often fight back to try and hold these places and the fact that they are generally, the Ukrainians are generally prevailing, suggests that all everything is going roughly in the right direction.
0: So, how much have things changed since you were there in the summer, and are you then now getting the impression really that that, that, that Ukraine is getting the upper hand
2: on paper it 's not changed a lot. What you see is that they 've maybe taken ten kilometers here of territory, ten kilometers there of territory, which given that in in for example the the southern district of the counter offensive area they've gone about another 60 70 kilometers to go before they reach the sea of azov to cut the the russians off from access to crimea so there's a great deal more way to go however they are at the moment trying to penetrate through the toughest bits of the russian land defenses where the area is thick with anti tank mines anti personnel mines and lots of tank traps so this is perhaps the hardest going and they are showing signs of puncturing through here and there, but it's not a situation where you will get one decisive blow. But most of the Ukrainians I spoke to did seem to think that at some point the floodgates may open. They may reach a point where they, they start out flanking the Russians or the Russians start deserting or giving up. And at that point, then things will change. What nobody can tell is just when that will be.
0: And and Colin, much has been made of the Western equipment that has been sent and is being sent to arm Ukraine, but shortages of some ammunition you found are beginning to bite. What did you see?
2: As we interviewed a group of Ukrainian artillery operators who'd been given the new British L119 uh, field gun. It's a a howitzer, not brand new, but still very workable. Um, The Ukrainians received about 36 of these, I think, earlier this year. Um, They say it's a nice gun, it fires accurately, it's more easy to use, but they don't have enough shells for them. One Ukrainian commander I spoke to said that he only had five artillery shells a week for his L119, which meant less than one a day. He said at that rate he was having to weigh up very carefully while in battle whether he was going to use this gun or not, and that at that rate it wasn't really any use at all, unfortunately. Instead, they're reverting to some of their old Soviet-era guns, which at least have shells available.
0: And what kind of impact is that having on the Ukrainian campaign? And do you know whether Russia is also suffering the same kind of shortages?
2: Well, certainly the shell shortage is across the board. Um, And this is not just something that's affecting British guns, I don't think. There is a general shortage of artillery ammunition across Ukraine's Western supporters at the moment. Ukraine does have other artillery that um, uh, it it can use where the shell shortages are less acute, but um, clearly it's not great if they've been given um, uh, an up-to-date Western kit without the means to use it properly on the battlefield.
0: And you did get to see a a German Leopard tank in use. What are the Ukrainians making of that?
2: We did indeed. Um, This was a a, a tank commander who was used to driving old Soviet tanks, but he'd uh, had training in Europe uh, earlier this year on a German Leopard tank, one of about, I think, 70 or so that have been uh, given to Ukraine so far. I asked him if he liked it. He said he did. Uh, He said he uh, appreciated the fact that the armour was much better on it. You felt much safer and he also said that it was it was a lot quieter the engine and i sort of wondered really whether that made that much difference given that no tank engine is that quiet but he said that in certain conditions it did mean that you could uh, creep up on the enemy a bit more easily than you would have done in a Soviet tank, if you had the the right terrain to disguise the noise a bit whereas an old Soviet tank would would have made it would have let everybody know that it was in in the vicinity from about 3 kilometres away, Uh, and that had been useful in certain ambush situations where they'd be able to get within just a few hundred yards of the Russian positions before the Russians had noticed they were there. Having Said that we also interviewed um some commanders who were still using the old soviet tanks as well and we asked them whether they were wishing that they had the leopards or, or the british Challengers instead And they they were largely philosophical. They said, actually, you know, when it comes to tanks, a tank is just a machine; Uh, it's a tool, and what what counts really is how you use it in battle. And I I think, given that some of these um, commanders have been using Soviet-era tanks, um, you know, for for decades, they perhaps prefer or trust what that what they know um, and 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 have used for years in battle, um, even if it's not the most up-to-date kit given also that the majority of the, the Russian tanks are also tanks that date back to the Soviet era.
0: Mm, interesting thought. Um, Colin what do you think will happen in the coming weeks and months?
2: Uh, I think the consensus is not an awful lot. We are nearing the end of what they call the you know, the, the kind of fighting season. It's already getting quite cold in Ukraine and within a month or two, you will have first heavy rains and then snow and fog and and, and a lot of ice. And, and all those conditions mean that um, uh, with the best will in the world, the counter-offensive is probably unlikely to deal uh, any kind of decisive blow this year if, it, if indeed it can do that at all um, and that we may have to wait now until um, the spring uh, until better conditions come along uh, before that, that you know the, the, it, things can resume at, at full pace again.
0: Colin Freeman good to speak to you thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Uh, Mike, let's pick up on one detail of apparent Ukrainian progress. Reports from Russian military bloggers, they've crossed the Dnipro River just up from Antonivka. That river has been something of a natural front line for much of this war, hasn't it?
4: yes i mean it's a very big river i mean it's very wide uh, it's difficult to cross lots of islands in the middle of it the ukrainians have crossed it in a couple of places uh, they crossed the Antonivsky bridge a while ago and they've got placements a bit further upstream but they look as if they've crossed in greater force now and i mean colin freeman said there that you know the ukrainians are still hoping they can outflank the russians somewhere and if they can get enough forces across the river from the western bank Uh, in Kherson Oblast, then they might be able to create some outflanking manoeuvres. And I'm sure that's what they will be hoping to do because the Russians are stretched. And if the Mm -hmm. Ukrainians can actually get across the river and then put some pressure on the Russians around Tokmak, then that might do some good but we'll 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 see um as colin said the ukrainians are, are still hoping for some sort of breakthrough where they uh, they've stretched the russians to the point where russian forces crumble significantly it hasn't happened yet and as he said i mean they're running out of time between now and the bad weather when it could happen we're talking now hmm. about something in the next two to three weeks
0: Well, the Ukraine war is already being recorded in the history books. And yes, we're already trying to identify the lessons, but a major new book has just been published, written specifically to identify the lessons from previous wars and how they could be used in Ukraine's fight for survival. What makes this one particularly interesting is the collaboration between a leading historian and perhaps the most significant military commander of the 21st century so far. General David Petraeus helped plan the American invasion of Iraq, commanded multinational forces there. He led US Central Command and NATO's ISAF in Afghanistan. And Andrew Roberts' many books include A New History of the Second World War, which was declared military book of the year by the army in 2010. Together, they've written Conflict, the evolution of warfare from 1945 to Ukraine.
5: I got on to David and uh, suggested we write a book that put the Ukraine invasion in its military historical context. And the publishers really liked that idea. And we had a um, a meeting and I was asked how we were going to split up the chapters. And I said, well, David's going to write about all the countries he's invaded. and. I would also fill Vietnam. in, <laughs> and also Vietnam as well. Yeah, he wrote that chapter too. I'd sort of fill in some of the rest.
3: We've to- together before, Kate. Um, we've done a number of events over the years. I'd actually done the Cliveden Literary Festival twice with Andrew, without having ever written a book. So it was a delight to be back there, having written one this time. We wanted to identify themes that might emerge. And in fact, a huge one uh, emerged. It literally caused us to go back and rewrite the introduction and so forth in the early chapters, because we realized that we needed to give much greater prominence to the importance of strategic leadership, Uh, that many of these conflicts, as we examined them, were won or lost by the quality of that strategic leadership personal
0: to you, uh, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan both started with rapid success for the U.S. and its allies, but became long drawn out failures. What personal lessons do you take from those wars?
3: Well, there's a number about the initial period, particularly uh, in, in Iraq, if I could, that I mean, one is that you should understand a country really well if you're going to invade it. And the truth is, we didn't have the kind of really granular, deep, nuanced understanding of the situation on the ground. Um, The second is don't then administer the subsequent occupation with a pickup team. We should have established an embassy right away uh, and and also a four-star headquarters. Now, ultimately, we did do that about a year and a half into our time there, but the coalition provisional authority was a rotating door of individuals, many of whom only stayed three months and then rotated back to the states or, or wherever else. Uh, And that just didn't provide the kind of continuity, the kind of relationship building and so forth that was necessary. Uh, And then finally, don't conduct operations and approve policies that will create vastly more enemies uh, than you take off the street by the conduct of that policy. So here I'm getting at the firing of the Iraqi military without telling them how they were going to be able to provide for their families. That created Mm -hmm. hundreds of thousands of enemies of the new Iraq. And needless to say, you got to have a heck of a lot better policy uh, for the post-conflict phase, if you will, uh, however short that may have been, than we had. I did actually ask a question in Kuwait, the final gathering of all the division and three-star commanders with the Organization for Reconstruction Humanitarian Assistance, the forerunner of the CPA, which got fired after a couple of weeks by Secretary Rumsfeld. But I asked these two retired three-stars who are running that, you know, could you give us a little bit more detail on what happens after we get to Baghdad and topple the regime? And their response was, you just get us to Baghdad, Dave, we'll take it from there. And obviously that did not work out uh, particularly I, well.
0: I mean, it's, it's incredible when you describe it like that, um, the benefit of hindsight. I'm just wondering, can I ask both of you, you, you General Petraece, for being involved and also Andrew from watching it from the outside. What were these kind of mistakes apparent at the time or is it with hindsight that you see them?
3: I think it's a mix. There were some other mistakes as well. We really probably should have had a larger force. We did originally have a year prior to that, when I was the chief of staff of the 18th Airborne Corps in the United States, we owned that particular plan and we had over 100,000 forces more than what we actually invaded uh, Iraq with as well. It it was slimmed down during the year that I was in uh, Bosnia, uh, chasing war criminals with your special forces and some other things. But again, some obviously becomes much clearer uh, with hindsight, but that's part of what we try to do here is to try to point these out so that those in the future uh, might have the benefit of this kind of historical reflection.
5: Yes, I think that having 2020 hindsight is the privilege of an historian. Of course, you know, that, that's your job really in a sense. But the most difficult thing about being a historian is to get the reader to place themselves in the shoes of the decision makers at the time who don't know what's going to happen next. You have to do it on a sort of moral level, because otherwise you can't blame people for getting things wrong. If, you know, they were given two alternatives and both were bad.
0: And what was it like for you, Andrew, though, actually writing the history of these conflicts for someone who, and analyzing them with someone who was actually involved?
5: Well, of course, working with uh, with David was fascinating because I was able to email him and ask him how he felt at particular times, or or what certain people, great historical figures, essentially, uh, were like, because he he served with them and, and and met them and knew them. So, and I never have. So that was a a tremendous insight for me. Uh, up until then, I'd only ever written about people like Churchill and Napoleon, who were safely dead and who I knew would not contradict the um, decisions and the <laughs> statements that. uh, I made.
0: General Petraeus, um, you say a recurring theme in the book is that money spent on deterrence is seldom wasted. Uh, Given how much conflict there has been since World War II, is that a lesson we failed to learn, or is it just that deterrence does have its limits?
3: Uh, Again, it's a bit of both, certainly. You have to make sure that deterrence is very, very solid by ensuring that the potential adversary sees very formidable capabilities on the one hand, and a willingness to employ them on the other and we have to remember that what happens in one part of the world can reverberate in another the syrian red line that was a red line uh did reverberate out into the asia pacific the decision to withdraw from afghanistan and the way it was conducted i would submit in fact that the decision to withdraw and the way it was conducted contributed at least to putin's decision to invade ukraine thinking he could get away with this without the us uk and NATO and Western world responding as we actually have.
5: And when deterrence fails, of course, it always winds up as far more expensive than if you just spent the money in the first place uh, on the deterrence.
0: Andrew Roberts and General David Petraeus on their new book, Conflict, the Evolution of Warfare. We spoke for the best part of half an hour, including about how Vladimir Putin tried and failed to copy a tactic from the Yom Kippur War and how the lessons in their book could apply in the Middle East right now. You can hear the whole thing in an extra edition of the Sit Rep podcast online now. Uh, Mike, um, you're currently writing a chapter about David Petraeus, for, or you're about to, for
4: a book about generals uh, yes I'm signed up for it next year um Ian Dale is is doing another series of books you know he's done a series of books on the uh, the prime ministers and kings and queens and he's doing a book um on 50 odd generals in history getting different people to write about them so you know from Cyrus the Great to Julius Caesar Robert E Lee um Schwarzkopf and David mm-hmm. Petraeus is one of the modern generals and I'm signed up uh, to do the chapter on him for this book that'll come out I think later next year
0: yeah, you'll be writing about a general who's alive and give you feedback, of course.
4: He will, and I yeah. shall seek it too. I mean, he—I have to say, his his book with David uh, with uh, Andrew Roberts is a terrific book. Um, was, mm. I was looking at it this week. It really is very, very good because it's got a lot of good detail in it on a series of wars since nineteen forty-five. But uh, and and it's it's full of military wisdom, as it were. But throughout it runs these schemes that they were talking about of strategic clarity. And I think it's really good. It's it it, it, um, it really produces something which reflects back all the time on where Vladimir Putin is in the Ukraine war. And, you know, and David Petraeus is one of the, the very few generals in history who both wrote a doctrine of counterinsurgency warfare and then put it into practice in two different theatres. You know, you can argue about the success of all of that, but, but many generals get to write military doctrine and many generals get to apply military doctrine. But there are very few generals who write it and then apply it themselves. And he's mm. one of them.
0: Really interesting. Thank you, Mike. Um, my thanks to all of our guests. Don't forget, you can hear the full version of General Petraeus and Andrew Roberts, that interview, wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us and you'll never miss an episode. Professor Michael Clarke and I will be back with another sit rep next Thursday. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening. Bye-bye.